after Dallas, after St. Paul and Baton Rouge, after too many men gone with skin the shade of you, after all this, I waved goodbye. A week we'd spent here in the cool of these mountains and the plans already in place for just me to remain. I stood amidst the perfume of sweet air and sharp evergreens, stood with my hand raised while you journeyed away. Next week, I called after you. I'll see you when you return next week. 130 miles between this mountain and our home. And earlier that morning, after we'd wandered the short stretch of a small town's main road, after we popped into a furniture store that smelled of stained pine, and after, yes, after, I saw a row of black Sambo dolls perched on a dusty shelf, an image I wanted this world to burn long ago. After all this, I pulled open the door to an art gallery and heard a bell chime. The shop owner, with her silver hair and firm wrinkles etched into her pale face, she ushered us through the entryway. Our senses took in the white walls, the cream shelves filled with orange and red glass, the scent of canvas and pottery, ink and paint. You must be newlyweds, she said. You and me, we glanced at each other. You touched my arm and your lips parted into that familiar grin. Almost eight years, I replied. So young, so young. And I think she wanted to reach her weathered hands for ours, but instead she gave us a tour of the art in that brightly lit place. When she found out that I am a writer, she tilted her head to the side. So much to write about now. Her words dissipated into a sigh, but I still heard all that she didn't say. The headlines say our country is in crisis, and I think about all that smolders and the temperatures that rise with the weariness of these recent days. She muttered, good people, no good people, and that's all that matters. She blew us a kiss as we walked arm in arm away, a breath of air that might ignite a spark or extinguish a flame. After Dallas, after St. Paul and Baton Rouge, after your car pulled away, I called out goodbye to you. I can't remember if I took my palm to my lips and gifted you a kiss across the empty space, but I tell myself that you caught all that I wanted to say. Please, my love, keep your hands on the wheel, your registration close, keep your speed under the limit, and go straight home. I watched your car's dusty bumper shrinking out of sight, the start of your spiral down that mountain, a return to the heat of our burning unknown. All I could do was reach out my open hand and wave. Welcome to the Protagonistas. Today, you get to hear from Patrice Gopo. She is a Jamaican daughter of immigrants born and raised in Alaska. And she shares some really great nuggets of wisdom about the beauty and the struggle of sharing your story. I really, really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you will too. Enjoy. Well, thank you again so much for doing this. I you know, was looking through your website and I was able to read the chapters of your book that you sent me and you are such an incredible writer. And so I just love um, how you're how you're so poetic in in all of the honestly very hard and deep things that you talk about. And so thank you for that. Thank you for your voice in that. And oh, so, 
Thank you for that. Those are very kind words. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's always encouraging to hear comments like that. Yeah. Okay, so I just want to hear generally your experiences, whether you have you know specific stories or um, just a general, what was your experience growing up as a daughter of Jamaican immigrants in Alaska? Because <laughs> that is, you know, yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. And I will just, to get it out of the way, because I know a lot of people wonder, how did Jamaican immigrants end up in Alaska? And <laughs> the short story is that my father immigrated to the United States when he was a teenager. So he actually finished high school in New York City. Mm -hmm. And then when he was done, at some point, he went back to Jamaica. But by this time, he was a permanent resident. He was a permanent U.S. resident. And it was during the time of the Vietnam War. And so while he was back, you know, in Jamaica, I believe there's a little fuzziness to the story, yeah. but he received a drug notice and that in order to maintain his permanent residency status he needed to respond to this draft note this u.s draft notice so he did and after basic training which i think took place in alabama everyone in his group was sent to vietnam except for mm -hmm. him and one other guy and he doesn't remember where the other guy went but uh, he was sent to Alaska. So oh, that's kind of the beginnings of my family's story of being in Alaska was that really it was the U.S. military that brought my father there. And my mom was in Jamaica at this point. She knew my father and they were kind of in this long distance relationship and writing letters and you mm. know, yada, yada. And um, so when he actually got out of the military, he went back to Jamaica and married my mom and oh. she finished nursing school. And then a couple months later, she picked up and moved from Kingston to Anchorage, wow. so, which is something I mentioned writing about in the book. But yeah, it's a great question thinking about what was it like growing up as the black daughter of Jamaican immigrants in Anchorage. And one of the things I like to say to people is there was beauty and struggle. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's like that for so many things in life, right? That there's yeah. beauty and struggle. And there is so much that I love and appreciate about my Alaskan childhood, growing up in Anchorage, uh, just kind of the presence of nature in my life. Mm -hmm. I was just on a field trip with my daughter's fourth grade class to the mountains here in North Carolina mm -hmm. last week. And as we were driving up into the mountains, I thought, this is like coming home. Oh, this is yeah. a place where I belong. I feel something being in the presence of this type of landscape. Mm -hmm. And true, it's not the same Alaskan landscape, but just even that sense of uh, you know, natural beauty surrounding us and kind of the peaks that rise in the distance. So, so I think there's something there that really captures my heart even today. And then I also think about Anchorage as a place of really strong community because a lot of people who were living there, particularly that we knew, they didn't have close family mm. nearby. They didn't have family nearby. And yeah. so really your friends became your family. And so that's a deep memory I have of Anchorage is that your friends are like your family to you. And, you know, holidays often involve connecting with friends because no one was leaving Alaska for Thanksgiving to go visit their family. Yeah. It's just too far away. And so, so I think those are things that define who I am even to this day and define the things that kind of hold my heart. And at the same time, I really did grow up in a predominantly white community. Not all of Alaska is like that and certainly not all of Anchorage is like that, but where I grew up was a predominantly white community and I would often be the only child of color in my classrooms, maybe not the school. Certainly my sister went to my school too. So yeah. uh, I wouldn't have necessarily been, 
But I think there's that reality of when you are one of the only or one of a few in a culture that doesn't necessarily affirm being a person of color. And by culture, I speak broadly. I'm not just trying to pinpoint Anchorage. I think we are a society built on hierarchy and uh, we know particularly where black women fall in that hierarchy. And so Mm -hmm. I think just even interacting in those spaces that uh, this is something I write about in my book, some of those awkward moments in school where you're singled out as the black child who should now be able to give insight into some sort of experience because you are the black person Mm -hmm. in the classroom. And, uh, just navigating that. So I think I have those memories as well. And those were not easy. And it's kind of the sense of where do you fit in society? This is your home. And yet you don't always feel like you're part of your home. And mm-hmm. so I, so that's what I often think about when I think about Anchorage, that this, this is a place that is dear to me. Mm-hmm. And yet there were things that were hard that sent me out into the world trying to find where I fit in the world too. Yeah, that's so rich. Uh, And so how did your, if you want to talk a little bit about your spiritual background or like, did you grow up Christian and how that, you know, fit Mm -hmm. into all of that? Yeah, absolutely. So my family would have, my parents would have really become evangelical Christians probably in the seventies before I was born. And so Mm -hmm. I definitely grew up in a, uh, a white evangelical space. And I, I would say that Additionally, there's beauty and struggle in this too, right? Mm-hmm. That I, I am a person who in many ways still holds on to aspects of my faith, but at the same time, I have gone through this journey of grappling with the ways in which, um, honestly, like white supremacy permeates the evangelical experience, whether people mm-hmm. fully realize that or not, and kind of trying to figure out, well, how do I hold on to a faith when maybe the presentation of that faith doesn't necessarily always affirm who I am. And so that's something I kind of even explore a little bit in my book when I interact with, uh, in, in the missionary community in, uh, not in the United States, but someplace else, but interacting with some Western missionaries and just some of the ways in which they are carrying racial bias with them, Mm -hmm. even as they are in these communities sharing their faith and, so, so I think, you know, I'll say again, Kat, that it's, it's not a simple, straightforward answer. And I, what I have seen over time is I realize that many people have found other expressions of their Christian faith. And I would say that I've sometimes wondered, well, maybe that should be me too. But at the same time, there are elements of this faith that I, I grew up in that I still hold onto very tightly. So I, I think for me, it's, it's kind of always an evolving thing. I, I would say that about my um, just my own faith journey and who I am as a Christian woman, a Christian black woman mm-hmm. uh, who is the child of immigrants. But one thing that I do find very encouraging is I feel like, and this could just be the circles I run into, run in, but I do feel like within even these spaces, there is more and more like conversation and action being taken around issues of justice and the ways in which we have uh, kind of allowed hierarchies to perpetuate even our institutions that should really be shaped in the 
way that Christ would want, that there's more and more kind of pushback against some of these things. Mm. And, and that to me is exciting. Mm -hmm. And it kind of makes me think maybe there really is room for me in this space. Yeah, no, 100%. That's so good. And I love that you talk about that it's always evolving because it is. I mean, we're never going to sort of arrive to, you know, a, yeah. a spiritual enlightenment. Um, I think it is just a constant, you know, going through the wilderness and then coming out of it and then learning and growing. And, and, and I love that you, you keep mentioning this beauty and struggle because I think that that yeah. is 100% life and faith. And, um, and right. even... Yeah, and that made me that made me think. So you have a I read a section that I I actually don't remember where, but it's something that you wrote. And so you talk about being a mother and you know pondering the race of fictional characters and how that matters. And then you talk about Anne of Green Gables and oh, and yeah. yeah, and I thought that was so beautiful. And and I'll I'll go ahead and quote you. You say uh, maybe I was drawn to that world because it didn't raise issues that brought me embarrassment and pain. But now, with a young daughter who will soon find her own favorite titles, I'm aware of the complex messages she will get from books with and without black characters. And her temptation may also be to avoid painful storylines and flee into happier worlds. Instead, I want to help her understand that black characters, like every kind of character, can live a gamut of experiences. And I yes. just love that because that kind of, you know, is that sort of beauty and struggle. Like there is pain and there is a painful history, but there is also beautiful things um, in each of our experiences. And and so with that, I kind of want to talk to you about um, just your your writing journey, your writing process. And, and I find it so interesting because I know that that's a huge, I mean, based on what I've read about you, that's just a huge part of your identity. You know, you are an author, a writer. Um, and I was recently listening to um, an interview on the Beautiful Writers podcast. I don't know if you listened. It's one of my favorites. But um, Austin Channing Brown was there, and she talks about how you know writing is 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 her craft and her passion and sort of her you know something that she loves to talk about and do. But when she is uh, interviewed for podcasts or things like that, like it's always like the conversation is just focused on her race, on her race, or on her being a black woman and her identity. Yeah. Yeah. And so she's right. like, I'm ha you know, I'm happy to talk about that, but I'm also a writer and I want to talk yeah. about my writing. And so that just sort of made me think of that, you know, that complexity yeah. and that beauty and that struggle. And so if you want to, I don't know, just talk to me a little bit about that and your, um, about your process of writing, telling your story, and specifically about yeah. making space for story. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, really great question. And thank you for bringing it up because I do think it's true. As a writer who often writes around topics of race and racial identity formation and racial injustice and you know my own personal immigration experiences or exp my family's immigration experiences, I do feel like those are often the topics that I explore in conversation with people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, at the heart of this, I love words. I love the way words can uh, share stories. I love the way words can speak into situations. I love, I love the beauty of language. So that's yeah. one thing that I often will share with people as I wrote my book is these were stories that were urgent for me to tell. They felt urgent for me to tell, but at the same time, I wanted to tell them well. And mm. so I really went through a very intentional process of growing as a writer. My background 
was not historically in writing. In undergraduate, I studied chemical engineering and my two graduate degrees, I have an MBA and a master's of public policy because I was thinking that I was gonna go do community development work and microfinance work. And Mm. uh, so I kind of came to writing at 30. I was 30 years old. My daughter had, my first daughter, I had just given birth to her. And I used to read this online magazine. And I remember thinking, I wonder if I could write something for Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the beginning that I pitched this article and they took it. And I, that was my first article that I ever wrote Mm -hmm. for something like that. I mean, I had written before in my past, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't really something I was focusing in on. And so that was a beginning. And in that space, I found this place where I could write stories that spoke into issues that I cared about and share my personal experience through the written word Mm -hmm. uh, for me, but also as a gift to others out there in the world too. And so, so like I said, that really started this journey of wanting to learn the craft of writing. And so I started studying writing, reading craft books about writing. I started taking classes, you know, attending Mm -hmm. conferences, you know, over the years growing as a point where I'm here where yes I like to tell the story but I also like to tell stories in a way where the language sounds right in my ear if Mm, that makes sense that I I I definitely am one who my book manuscript I read it out loud maybe six or seven (laughs) times Mm -hmm. before I you know finished it because part of it was not just how the words look as you read them but what does it sound like as I read them aloud? Is that really sounding how I want it to sound? So, so that's part of my process is, you know, crafting the story, but also thinking about the precision of language. What are the right words for what I'm trying to convey? Uh, what kind of sense do I want to leave people with? One thing that people have noted about the essays in my collection is that they really don't leave us with answers Mm, and for me that was very intentional because i think a lot of the things i wrote about i don't have answers Mm. or easy solutions or anything like that instead i wanted to just sit in that space of grappling that is the reality of where i am and in a way to share that with readers is to allow them to also just sit in that place Mm -hmm. of maybe grappling or potentially discomfort or, um, yeah, just to recognize that actually, if it's true that we inhabit both beauty and struggle, that there's not going to be anything clear cut about this. So, so that's something that I really want to bring to my writing too. Yeah, that's so good. I do. And I, I did notice that, you know, in, in what I was able to read that it's, it does sort of encapsulate, you know, that struggle of life and like, this is just what it is. And then, right. you know, let's move yes. on or, you know, or let's just sit here or let's just, you know, yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's so beautiful and, and necessary in writing because we do, even me as a writer, like I do want to get to that conclusion and, and wrap it up really nicely. And like, so this is what I learned, you know, where it's like, well, not always I'm still learning maybe I'm still processing through that and so right yeah and so with that what is your process of of picking out these stories that shape you um that become stories that you tell and that let people know a little bit about who you are you know is there do do they just pop up in your memory and you work to them or or you know do you have a specific way of just of of picking out these stories yeah no that's a great question and I would say 
in terms of what stories I choose to tell, I, I used to think there was always an urgency associated with the stories. When I first started writing, I used that word already, I know, but I'll repeat it again, that I, there was something in me that was saying these stories have to get out mm. and, you know, out of me, that I need to speak them out, speak them out. And I say that by writing them, so not mm, literally yeah. speaking them. But, um, and so, you know, there were just these memories that I had and uh, ideas and thoughts that were going through my mind, things that I was pondering and thinking about. And those became really the essays that mm. formed this book. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that there were, you know, incidences that occurred. So there's an essay I write about reading uh, Huckleberry Finn, the mm -hmm. book Huckleberry Finn in high school during the midst of the O.J. Simpson trial. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was just a story that was within me that I wanted to tell, you know. And there's another incident that I uh, wrote about related that I shared already about uh, something that a person in a missionary community said to me and you know that it was like a memory that lingers right so mm -hmm. the, that's one way I think it happens sometimes what happens is you are literally standing in a moment that is unfolding in front of you and there's just something in there that says this this is the mm -hmm. story you need to yeah. write about and that happened there's an essay that is in the book called for my husband driving down a mountain mm -hmm. and it concerns watching my husband he's uh, my husband is a black man watching him drive away in the aftermath of several uh, police shootings of unarmed black men. Yeah. And, and so I remember there was an incident in that essay. And as that incident was unfolding, I thought, you're going to be writing about that. And so in those moments, it's almost like a gift. And, you know, there's, I think it's even something spiritual, right, that is mm -hmm. happening. And it's the sense there is you need to pay attention, pay attention to what's happening because these are going to be part of the words that you're about to put onto paper. Mm -hmm. So I think there's that. But I think other essays, they are much harder to, they're not, they don't just show up like that. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they're yeah. not quite the gift like that, even though they ultimately do become a gift as well because you write them. But I know there's a very long essay in the book entitled An Abundance of Impossible Things. And it concerns living in Charlotte, here in Charlotte, North Carolina, in the aftermath of the Charleston massacre. Mm. And I just remember, Kat, that that topic, it was so hard. I mean, it's just such a hard topic. Yeah. And I kept thinking, I feel like I need to write about this, but I don't know how to write about yeah. this. And uh, and I was saying to someone, I was at a literary festival a couple days ago, and I was speaking to a group, and I was just saying that, you know, sometimes when things are so hard, that you almost have to come at them from the side. And so mm. I remember that when I was working on that essay, I kept having this image of how dry the grass was that summer. Mm. And I kept writing about kind of um, the dying grass and how the dirt was kind of dust because it wasn't damp like it normally would be. And after a while of writing about that, that actually gave me my entry point into writing about this much larger thing that, you know, was yeah. just so hard. And so, so I think sometimes that's what happens in the writing process is that you need a side entry point because mm -hmm. to confront what you're thinking about straight on is too painful. Um, so, so I think there's that, but, but I will say one thing I've discovered now that this book is out there in the world is I find that the urgency I had experienced in the beginning is not always present, but it doesn't mean the ideas aren't there. Mm. 
Yeah. It just means that maybe I need to let myself settle into making some other connections that I hadn't thought about before. So that's something I've been doing more of is uh, just giving myself almost writing assignments to work to unearth uh, what it is that I might be meditating or uh, pondering in my mind about and seeing would that actually maybe make a good essay. So, so I think that's kind of where I am now. Yeah, that's so good. And so you talk a little bit, I know right now you just talked about the grass and earlier growing up in Alaska, you know, nature, how that played such a big role. And I'm just curious, like what role does nature and creation, if you will, play into how you think about your story, how your story kind of is birthed, you know, into the world? Because that's something that at least lately for me, um, I've I've almost had to rely so much on nature just to, you know, like just to kind of get through, um, yeah, just what I'm thinking through, what I'm wrestling with. And, and, um, and I feel like, you know, I I recently read um, Willie Jennings, well, this was about a year or two ago, but he talks a lot about um, how we are connected to the earth. And, um, and so I recently wrote an article about how gardening for me has been a sort of resistance, like an act of actual resistance, you know, because, yeah, because, you know, uh, especially as people of color, you know, and, and, and if you think about the history of colonization and the history of, of how people have been ripped from their land and and land has been such a big thing. And and I, so I'm Cuban and, and, you know, that's a, a big part of, of me growing up is watching my grandmother just tend to the earth and how she receives so much life from that, from her trees and, you know, and so, you know, you as someone who grew up in that within so much nature, I don't know, do, is there any way that you can think of right off, you know, right now, how nature has played a role in, in whether it's your writing or coming up with your story or, you know, any of that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I'll just say, I love what you said about the gardening. I, I really like that. That's neat. I'm kind of an act of resistance. I love the yeah. idea that our acts of resistance don't necessarily have to be these huge sweeping yeah. in your face things. And yet they are in mm-hmm. a way too. Yeah. So anyway, so thanks for sharing that story. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I will say to your question, you know, one thing that just came to mind, and I unfortunately am not going to remember who the poet is or the correct language that was used in this situation. But I remember another poet telling me about a third, a second poet. So there's two (laughs) poets in the story, but one poet was talking about another more well-known poet. And they were talking about this idea how as writers, we have kind of like our images that we hold onto. And we Mm -hmm. may not always realize what they are, but we have them in our work and they, they're kind of in a way like our home images that mm. they they speak something to us and uh, and so I, unfortunately I'm not saying this as well as they did because I can't remember all <laughs> no, the you're okay. but yeah. the thing that I remember from that is being very moved by that idea because I I find that my work often refer to mountain mm. or maybe even the absence of mountains and then also refer to water quite mm, a bit. That, yeah. there are, that Those are images that will show up in my work. And I just feel very strongly because it's somehow ingrained into me about mountains and water. Yes, because of having grown up in Anchorage, which is a city that is flanked on either side by water and mountains. But also I think there is like a generational memory as well that my parents are from places where there were these 
you know, that there were mountains, not mountains the same as in Alaska, but mm-hmm. Jamaica had its own set yeah. of things like that. And that there was water there too. And so I feel like these are kind of images that are part of me. And so I would wonder if maybe we all have something like that, that yeah. it's, you know, maybe for me it's mountains and water, but for someone else, it might actually be the earth or something, mm-hmm. or it might, might be something else. And I think in a way it's neat to maybe identify that because then we can start to be more intentional about how that shows up yeah. in our writing and maybe in our lives too. Mm-hmm. So I, it just kind of made me think, I told you I went to the mountains on this fourth grade field trip and I thought to myself as I was up there, I need to do this more often yeah. because this is something that's actually life-giving for mm-hmm. me. Um, just like maybe for you, gardening might be something that brings life, mm-hmm. that, that there are things that tie us to creation that I think are life-giving for us. Certainly. It's good if we know what those things are. So I also wanted to ask you about uh, Psalm 139. I know that that um, was a big part of your um, of your essay collection. Um, I believe you began each section of your book with the first 16 verses, if, if I'm correct. Yeah, yeah okay. right. Yeah, so there is uh, each, so there's three sections of the book and each section has a little bit from the first 16 verses. I don't think I used it in its entirety, but there's uh, like a bit from each section. But yeah, I mean, Psalm 139, it's meant a lot to me. And I think part of it is maybe a journey of, kind of acceptance of self. Mm-hmm. I think I hadn't really thought much about that psalm until I was about 20. And I was attending a church where they had that song set to music. And I just remember being very struck by the words of it and thinking about how, in a way, I'm trying to find myself out there in the world. And yet there's no place outside, you know, be that I could go beyond what God has created me to be, you know? Mm. So I think there was that just sense of affirmation of self that I experienced. And I do refer to it a little bit in one of the essays where I talk about cutting off my hair that had been chemically straightened and deciding Mm. to embrace my natural texture. And that there was just the sense of this is who I am. I've been created to be this person. And whether the world or not affirms me, I am affirmed in the eyes of my God. Mm -hmm. And so that for me has been kind of a powerful concept of thinking about me as being made good. Mm -hmm. And I, I think, you know, as I'm sure you can relate as a woman of color, that there are a lot of messages that are not affirming us out there in the world. Mm. And so to find something that does say that, I think it has been important for me and important for my own faith journey because part of the challenge is I think with even within the context of my Christian faith, that that has not always been affirming to who I am and my particular story. And yet to see that within scripture, it's still, there is that affirmation, I think is a neat and important thing to experience. Yes, amen, that's beautiful. And so I, I also read that you talk a little bit about the book of Ecclesiastes and how there's a time and a time to keep silent, a time to speak. Um, and so you, you share a story, which I thought was just such a powerful story about your mother and how she was a nurse and she was attending to a white uh, patient and he, I guess he was close to death and he mentioned how he wanted a white nurse. And so the head nurse was like, absolutely not. 
And then your mom, you know, she was like, look, you know, let's just extend grace to this man. He's dying. It's fine. Just give him a white nurse. And I, I thought that was so, uh, uh, you know, so profound and just so complicated. Right. And so yes, right. it's just so yes. complicated. And so I, I, I was thinking about that, you know, I was, as I was reading that, um, because then you continue and you share also how you sort of had a time where you went through two different, you know, racial, you know, instances yeah. of racism. One of them, you decided to confront it. And then the other one, yeah. you decided to sort of let it go. And I've, you know, been in similar situations, of course. I mean, we all have. But I know recently I, I decided to confront a family member's racism. And that was mm-hmm. really hard and uncomfortable and yeah. horrible. And so many people were like, well, you know, they're old. Just let them be. You know, it's yeah. why are you start? You know, right. And so I love that you don't shy away from the fact that, you know, it, it, it's uncomfortable and there's a time and a season. And, and I'll quote you, you say, um, a time to listen, a time to be heard, a time for dialogue, a time for protest, a time for action. And if ever systemic injustice exists, perhaps the time is always right for change, um, which I think is so beautiful. And I do, I don't know, if you want to just kind of talk to me a little bit about that complexity of yeah, I mean, there's a time for both. And and we hate yeah. to say that because I want to be like, no, always is the time, you know, yeah. to, to raise right. hell. And, and that's what I want to say. But, you know, in all actuality, life is complicated. And so, yeah, I mean, just talk to me a little bit about that. Maybe your mom's experience and your own mm-hmm. and... Yeah, yeah, right. No, I think, I think everything you say about this is a complex space to exist in. And I, you know what I will say, Kat, is I think maybe that particular piece also arose from this idea that people want to say, this is what everyone should be doing all the time for us yeah. to, uh, you know, pursue justice. And I think my particular feeling is actually there are multiple avenues and multiple ways in which we pursue justice. Mm-hmm. And I think to recognize that, yes, sometimes the time is we speak out, we say something, but sometimes it's that instead we pen something and write something and make it a commentary for others to hear. You know, I think there's just a Mm -hmm. wide variety of ways we can engage with issues of justice. And I think part of the challenge is that we sometimes create a system where we we let some larger entity decide how we all need to behave within the context of the pursuit of justice without recognizing the various ways people contribute to that and, and affirm that too. I think the other thing that's also true is, especially I think as uh, people of color, we need to recognize the toll that comes from being the ones to always push up against an injustice. And I think there can be truly like a level of exhaustion associated Mm -hmm. with that too. So there's also that space for like, what does it mean to care about yourself so that you can continue over the long term to engage with these issues and not just become this like, flame that you know mm-hmm. dies out very quickly mm-hmm. uh, so I think there's that that people also need to consider so that's why I think it makes it you know a complicated thing but what I do think is important is if we continue to share stories about the ways in which we are pursuing justice the ways in which we are resisting and in large and small ways I think that we get a more robust view of how we can all be engaging as a society versus if we only hear one story, 
then we actually make it a very narrow way in which we pursue these things when actually there, I think, is a broad way. Mm, yes, amen. Um, and it, yeah, I mean, it's going to look, because life is so complex and going back to the beauty and the struggle, it's going to look broad and different and, you know, and, and it just does require um, being very intentional when we navigate different situations and being very present. Um, I like how you said earlier, you know, pay attention, you know, pay attention to a specific moment that you are experiencing. Just pay attention um, because, you know, it's going to require being very present in order to to be able to navigate these situations. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for being, um, yeah, just honest with that complexity because a lot of times, I mean, it's a complicated thing and and it's easier to say, you know, one way or the other. Um, But I think Mm -hmm. it's important that we sit in that tension. Um, and so yeah. my my final question, I um, I asked this last week to my last guest and, and I, I just really, I don't know, I, I kind of was like, I think I'm going to start doing this more. Okay, um, yeah. <laughs> so what is it that gives you hope? Um, I know we live in a time where you know, it can just feel really hopeless a lot of the times. Um, and and sometimes hope can come from just really extravagant, incredible, wonderful things. And sometimes it can be something as simple as, you know, a child laughing or, you know. Mm-hmm. And so what is it right now um, that is giving you hope or, or a specific instance recently that you've experienced that you felt hopeful? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. And actually I will, I've been telling this story. It happened about a week and a half ago. No, two weeks ago. Now I was uh, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and I was leading a couple groups of seventh graders in a writing workshop. Mm -hmm. And I was, they were doing two main activities. The first activity was about thinking about their name and writing about their name. And then the second activity was identifying kind of the different elements that formed who they who they are and then writing about those things and I tell you Kat it was amazing how they entered in to wanting to write about uh, you know their stories but mm. I think the other thing that was really neat is they then wanted to share their stories with their classmates and how mm. respectful and encouraging their classmates were to those who shared stories and as I was listening to these kids get up and talk about their names some of them had names that you know were very unique and unusual and I remember when I was a child you almost wanted to always just fit in and not have a unique and unusual Mm. name and yet these kids were so proud of that and sharing the stories of how their parents came up with their name and as I was listening to that I just had this sense like we're gonna pay we're raising a generation of young people who can honor one another and uh, yeah it it just really gave me hope now I recognize it's not like that everywhere across the board all the time with seventh graders Mm -hmm. but in that moment in that library as I was listening to these kids pop up and share their stories and listening to the class thank them for sharing their stories I just felt this deep sense of hope and gratitude that I was able to bear witness to that amen that is beautiful I love that yeah I I'd work with uh, high school students and, and there are so many moments where I'm like, we're going to be okay. <laughs> like yeah, our future, right. like, we're going to be okay. Um, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think they can just be a real inspiration. And um, yes, yeah. so that, that's my, that's what I'm holding on to right now because I do, I do think, you know, we walk that tension of hope and hopelessness because mm-hmm. sometimes you just, see everything that's happening in the world you see the injustice and you think could this ever really get better and so I do 
really value those moments of hope that I do feel. Amen. Definitely. So um, where can, you know, where can our guests find you? Where can they follow your work? Or if you want to tell us a little bit more about right, your book and any of that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my book is called All the Colors We Will See, uh, Reflections on Barriers, Brokenness, and Finding Our Way. It's a collection of personal essays, and you can find it, you know, wherever books are. Uh, Barnes & Noble actually picked it as one of their Discover Great New Writers oh, books awesome. back in the fall. And Congrats. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, that was really exciting. So yeah, so it's kind of wherever books are. You can find me at patricegopo.com. That's my website. I am on Facebook. My Facebook page is at patricegopo. And on Instagram, I'm at my, my thing is at, at patricegopo. <laughs> Is, uh, and sometimes on Twitter. I'm sometimes on Twitter too, but very rarely. Instagram is a little bit more fun. So, yeah. yeah, so those are all the different places that you can find me. And if you go to my website, there is definitely a sample of some of the essays I've written out there in the world. So, that's- awesome. Yes, wonderful. Well, thank you again. Um, I mean, this was wonderful. I loved all your insight. And, and like I said, you, your writing is definitely a gift to the world. So, Thank you for, for your work and your voice. Oh, well, thank you so much. This has been a really fun interview. I've appreciated your, uh, your questions and just the dialogue that we even had. So yeah. I really value the work that you're doing and putting voices like mine out there in the world. So thank you so much. Yeah, well, have a wonderful, wonderful day. My mother told me her American citizenship ceremony took place in a high school auditorium. Maybe two dozen of us became citizens, she started off, then changed her mind. No, probably more. She mentioned how they served punch and cookies afterwards in the long hallway lined with lockers. The year was 1984, the same year I had a lemonade stand, started kindergarten, and turned five. I don't remember the high school auditorium or the punch and cookies, but I do remember a stranger reaching for my mother's thumb and rolling it across a black ink pad. He pressed her thumb against a sheet of paper with room for nine more prints. When he finished, he offered my mother a tissue to wipe her fingers. As my mother and I walked out of the immigration office, I held her ink-stained hand. Months after that, she took an oath and pledged allegiance to a country she'd lived in for a decade. No longer a Jamaican, now a Jamaican-American. 30 years later, in 2014, I sat with my two young daughters in a large room packed with rows of chairs. A certain stuffiness mixed with excitement overwhelmed our local immigration office auditorium. Each seat was occupied. My girls and I, we wore red, white, and shades of blue. I craned my neck to watch my husband's lips move as he took an oath and pledged allegiance to a new country no longer a Zimbabwean, now a Zimbabwean-American. Tears pooled in my eyes, and I found my arms tightening around our daughters. Instead of punch and cookies in a high school hallway, our neighbor treated us to lunch and spoke of the day many years before when he also became an American citizen. Once my mother told me that she decided to become a citizen because she worried that something could happen, a war, a political crisis, an unseen event, 
She thought our country might divide the citizens from the permanent residents and split families in two. She envisioned my father, my sister, and me sent in one direction and her sent in another. At first, I laughed at her active imagination. Then I recognized her wisdom. In recent days, I read of people barred from my country, refugees, individuals with visas, permanent residents like my husband and my mother once were. I read of seven countries, and I think how easily seven countries can morph into 17 countries or 77 countries. Over three decades ago, I slipped my small hand into my mother's ink-stained one. And now, as I gather with my husband and our girls around our dinner table and offer prayers of thanks, I squeeze my husband's hand tight. We have papers and blue passports, and I believe we are immune to the ways politics could part a family. I think of other families wanting, longing right now to have this sense of safety. I admit, I have a certain level of confidence in my family's security. Lately, though, I find myself wondering if perhaps I'm also naive.